Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give, and there's no regular commitment. Just click the link in the show description to support now. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, how to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, how to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So, Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Welcome to Concussions Out Podcast, presented by Headcheck Health. I'm Nick Mercer. This is episode 48, and I'll be talking about the brain today with neuroscientist and director of the Emotional Brain Institute, Joseph Ledoux from New York University. Before formally introducing my guest, I'd like to first thank my sponsor, Headcheck Health. Headcheck Health bridges the gaps in concussion care through simple, powerful technology. Join organizations like the Canadian Football League, Trek Factory Racing, the Canadian Junior Hockey League, Eastern Washington University, and Volleyball Canada, who rely on HeadCheck to improve communication and optimize care. Visit HeadCheckHealth.com for more. My guest today is Joseph Ledoux. Joseph Ledoux is a professor of neuroscience, psychology, psychiatry, and child and adolescent psychiatry at New York University. He is also the director of the Emotional Brain Institute. The Emotional Brain Institute is a joint initiative between New York University and New York State. Okay, I've introduced you earlier in the podcast, but uh, if you'd like to please just introduce yourself and just tell who you are. I am Joseph Ledoux. I'm a professor of neuroscience at uh, New York University. And my latest book is The Deep History of Ourselves, The Four Billion Year Story of How We Got Conscious Brains. Uh, that, that was great. I actually heard you on uh, Joe Rogan podcast, and mm-hmm. uh, I thought you'd be a great person to talk, talk about now because you're a neuroscientist, but also a great person to talk about uh, the brain and consciousness because that's, every, as we'll know, that every brain injury is unique, every concussion is unique, so... And you talk about consciousness, obviously, a lot, con- the conscious brain, so, and that's obviously intertwined with how people, how how people react to, to brain injury and stuff, and all that. So, uh, and the, so, intertwined with that is also your idea, this idea of autonoetic consciousness, mm-hmm. the recognition of yourself and your own potential, own potential future. So, if you could just talk about, first of all, talk about your book, a deep history of ourselves, the four billion year story of how we got, how we got conscious brains. And what do you mean by consciousness? Okay. <laughs> if well, I read uh, that within half hour. <laughs> right. So can can I um, – maybe the best thing to do is to tell you why I wrote the book. 
as okay. a starting point. Sure. And because consciousness really doesn't come up until the very end of the book because well, it's yeah. a long story and you know right. it's, I think it's something that happened recently rather than uh, in the in the far past, but it's built you know it's something that that emerged out of this four billion year history. But anyway, so I got started on this topic because um, I'd worked on this brain area called the amygdala for, I don't know, 35, 40 years, something like that, uh, maybe 35, I don't know. Started in 1985. Yeah. And, um, well, you know, the, the amygdala is involved in detecting and responding to danger. And we often talk about that in terms of fear. But, you know, I've really been pushing the idea that it's the amygdala is not despite common understanding, is not a fear center. It's a system in the brain that detects and responds to danger. The conscious experience of fear is something that comes about later. So just put that thought on hold. The consciousness is separate from what the amygdala does. The conscious fear itself is separate from what the amygdala does. The amygdala is detecting and responding to danger. So I worked on this and found um, how the amygdala receives inputs about danger and how it controls outputs to make you freeze or flee or to make your blood pressure and heart rate go up, or stress hormones to be released. So I worked out all that kind of circuitry. And the next question was, you know, how do, what kind of molecules are involved in the learning of that kind of stuff? And um, we got clues about what to look for from the work of Eric Kandel and others that were studying simple organisms, invertebrates like snails and flies and so forth. And with a simple nervous system, it's pretty easy to figure out what the cells are doing and how the molecules are contributing to what it's doing, but it's much more complicated in a mammal. So with all those clues that they discovered in invertebrates, we'd simply apply those to vertebrates, to mammals. And indeed, the molecules that underlie the learning about danger in a rat and a human are the same as those that underlie learning about danger in a fly or a worm or a, a snail and so forth. So how did that happen? That means that there's some ancestor, common ancestor, that gave those molecules, those genes, to, to each of those lines of organisms. Those organisms are separated by 630 million years of, of evolution. Um, but where did they get theirs? Well, you know, the invertebrates got theirs from other invertebrates. But you know, by, there's a, there are two, there are three kinds of invertebrates. One is the um, the uh, bilateral invertebrates. You know, they have a front and a back and a top and a bottom and a left and a right, just like we do. Yeah. So they and we get those genes from an ancestor, which was the ancestor, the common bilateral ancestor of invertebrates and vertebrates. So where did that that early invertebrate bilateral organism get its genes and molecules? Well, it got it from a jellyfish-like organism that has uh, a, a top and a bottom, but not a front and a back or a left and a right. And where did it get it? its uh, genes and molecules? It got them from a sponge-like organism. And where did it get its? So now we're talking about things happening close to a billion years ago. And it the, the sponges got their genes and molecules from a protozoa. That's a single-cell organism. Now, what is a single-cell organism doing with genes and molecules involved in synaptic plasticity in an organism with a nervous system? Well, protozoa learn and store information as well. Uh, they can avoid danger and learn about what's dangerous and move away from it. They can learn about what's useful, like food, and move towards it. Um, but they don't have a nervous system. They're just a single cell. Now, that's kind of phenomenal that they can learn 
they can store information, but they have no nervous system because we think of a nervous system. It's important for things like learning and memory, but they do it. And in fact, you know, they get this stuff from bacteria, the oldest living organism on earth. Yeah. That takes us back to 3.8 billion years ago, um, the beginning of life. So what does that mean? If we think about what a bacterial cell does in life, it has to do five things, detect danger, incorporate nutrients, balance fluids and ions, thermoregulate and reproduce. Those are the same things we have to do to get by yeah. and other animals as well. So when we think about rats and mice and I don't know, snakes or whatever, and we talk about the behavior, when they're eating, we think they're eating because they're hungry. When they're running away from danger, we think it's because they're afraid. But that is the wrong conclusion. So that's the, your idea. Sorry, sorry to drop. That's your idea. The implicit and uh, and conscious memories. Oh, that's implicit. Uh, we're not talking yeah. about consciousness yet. I just no, want to get yeah. the the, yeah. the history of this implicit memory thing, because yes, it's so right. implicit. There's no consciousness to even make it explicit. I mean, if we're going back to the beginning of life, four billion years ago, yeah. where we've got cells that can store information about danger acquire new information and respond to it all without a nervous system. So that four billion year history is the history of what takes us to a brain area like the amygdala, which does the same thing. It's detecting and responding to danger. It's identifying useful and harmful foods and so forth. It's involved in, in sexual behavior, but it's not involved in the creation of fear and hunger or pleasure or any of those things we project onto the organisms we see behaving like that. That's the key point. Right. So now you want to know where does consciousness come from? Well, <laughs> that's that's a bit much, but this uh, amygdala, as, as you think, you say the amygdala is responsible for the implicit memories of uh, of, 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 of us as uh, humans is what, I'm, what we're interested in here. The, uh, so humans... Amygdala is what controls that through various well, neural inputs? There are lots of different kinds of implicit memory. The amygdala yeah. is involved in implicit memory about danger, but also about foods and sex. And it, uh, it stores a lot of different kinds of implicit memories. But that, you know, it's really inappropriate to talk about the amygdala. I mean, I do it too, but it's, yeah, I don't know. So it's a complicated thing. There's like four parts, like, just, but it's bilateral and it's. Well, there are 12 different, different nuclei. Well, take it, look at it this way. Let's take one cell in the amygdala. Yeah. It might, it might be involved in all of those behaviors involving sex and um, food seeking and uh, uh, danger and so forth. But it could be involved in it um, because it's part of a different circuit. In other words, all the synapses on it are not doing one thing. You, you might have that cell involved because some synapses are getting inputs from feeding systems, some from danger systems, some from sexual systems, and its outputs are going to different kinds of responses. So cells are parts of networks and networks are parts of systems. So the amygdala is, is simply, it's like a big building, a warehouse that has all this storage stuff in it. But you store different things in different places. Exactly, yeah. So, I mean, because you, you, you demonstrated the amygdala is a small part of the brain, and it's and, uh, and, and it is, alone is that complex. shows you how complex uh, the complexity of the brain. Um, and I'll, I was just going to ask you about the, this. Uh, I sent you, I don't know if I sent you, I tweeted uh, 
an, a, a study by a Melanie Doctor Money Wegener W E G E N E R Wegener Wegener Wegener. Uh, yeah, we've been communicating but, a long time working this out. I don't remember. Yeah, remind no, me. no, no. This is just last week or whatever. <laughs> I yeah. just tweeted. It. Um, she, uh, this is about this is about brain and concussions, and uh, actually, what brought me to think about your you were mentioning your before in the, the Joe Rogan interview, those split brain patients, epilepsy patients you studied in, in this in the in your PhD when you were first studying first what well, first graduates are interested in conscious memories and uh, yeah. and emotions, and the split the split brain split brain epilepsy patients you were studying then and how she did a very similar study well not very similar but a, a study. Well, concussed patients showing them flashing words on sides of the screen, so left and right, okay. and the, mm-hmm. the so the it crosses and she they determined they could they thought they could determine that they that the uh, concussed patient had their corpus callosum or the splint or their splenium uh, injured injured, so they disrupted the flow of, of the flow of information okay. from left to right. So, do just let's talk about these pet brain patients. Those are just fascinating. Examples. So the split brain patients you you studied you first you were introduced to. So do you want to talk about what what this study you want me was? To talk about those? Yeah, if you could. Yeah, just okay. Put... So yeah, I was a I was a fresh graduate student. Uh, didn't have much background in science when I uh, joined the lab of Michael Gazanica in 1974. And I thought I was going to be doing some animal research with him, but he said, no, we got this really cool project on these, these human split brain patients, these epileptics, in whom the two sides of the brains have been separated in an effort to control the um, uh, sort of the runaway seizures that happen if the, if the information is crossing between the two hemispheres uh, unconstrained because they have you know damaged tissue from the epilepsy that's creating a lot of neural activity and it kind of gives it some momentum if it's crossing back and forth. But it, these people are fascinating to study from the point of view of consciousness because you can talk to the left hemisphere, um, just as you and I are talking, but yeah. the right hemisphere is kind of, it's, you know, it's a silent it's hemisphere. Own. It does, yeah. it's on its own, it's over there, kind of, we don't know what's going on over there. But um, we had one patient that um, could read in both hemispheres, but he could only talk out of the left, which is a more traditional right. thing. Um, but because he could read, we could put complex questions over there rather than just you know showing a picture of an apple and he could find the apple. But here we were asking him, who are you? And he would uh, take his left hand connected to the right hemisphere and reach out in front of a, uh, into a, a bunch of Scrabble letters and pull out P-A-U-L, his name, Paul. Um, and he could also, you know, when we asked him, what do you want to be when you grow up? He spelled... Um, uh, race car driver. Now, when we asked the left hemisphere what he wanted to be, it said, "I want to be a, a you know a draftsman, an architect." Yeah, yeah. So we right, got because yeah, different, yeah. Gotcha. You know, these it, this was pretty striking. Yeah, I mean, yeah. you know, it, is it like hard science? You know, with statistics? No, it's just yeah. observations. But it was a very striking observation that one side of the brain had one life ambition and the other side had a different life ambition, but they both had the same name. They both knew his name was Paul. So there's a kind of self-identity, and yet these two sides are kind of, you know, off on different t- tracks about who Paul is, in a sense. It's kind of fascinating. So the autonoidic consciousness was, was just, 
is was in both hemispheres or or around yeah, yeah, yeah. somehow. Well, that you could you could you know that would be uh, a conclusion you could draw. Shall I explain yeah. autonomic consciousness? Uh, One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at uh1.com. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just $60, bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince? They exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to Quince.com upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss. PlushCare.com slash weight loss. So autonomic consciousness is a term introduced by the psychologist Indel Tolving from um, Toronto, uh, there in Canada. Okay. And he, um, he had this idea, well, he, he, he was the first person to introduce the idea of semantic and episodic memory. So these are memories about facts, that would be semantic memories, as opposed to memories about episodes in your life or personal experiences. And um, these These are two kinds of memories that both involve the medial temporal lobe or the hippocampus uh, uh, to store them and and retrieve them and so forth. Um, But they're of different qualities in a sense. Now, he said, well, the but but they're both conscious memories, memories that you can conscious experience. So he gave a name to the conscious experience of semantic memory. He called that noetic. In other words, just like knowledge greek for just yeah. knowledge so it's knowledge about something in the world but autonoetic he used that for self-referential knowledge knowledge about oh, okay. yourself so noetic consciousness is you know i know there's an apple there autonoetic consciousness is i know that i know there's an apple there it's right. me that's seeing the apple and right. that is uh you know no one has demonstrated that kind of extra level of of uh, awareness in other animals. It doesn't mean that they don't have it, but it's certainly been, been difficult to kind of uh, to demonstrate that. So, um, and it's certainly important in who we are as people that uh, we, you know, I, me, mine, all these things that, that we care about are, are ours. You know, that's the basis of all, everything that's good about us, but also everything that's bad. We kind of like can form groups that will ostracize, hate, kill other groups because of uh, beliefs about what's the what's the proper group 
so consciousness is our best friend as a, as a species, but also in a sense our worst enemy. Right, and it, which also means it shows you talks about how complex the the brain is. There's not this is an area of not I shouldn't say a new area of study, but I mean the brain is still relatively, I mean relatively unknown compared to other uh, the, all the paths paths you go through and all the all the different processes it can it can handle. So um, yeah, there's a lot that goes on in the brain. I mean, I think we've yeah. you know. We've made a lot of progress. Yeah, the Society right, for yeah. Neuroscience started, this is sort of the, the 50th anniversary or so. So it's, we've only been studying neuroscience, you know, technically for 50 years. I mean, there've been, there were people studying the brain before that, but there was no sort of identification of what a scientist that studies the brain is. And that's what kind right. of brought the field together now that we have, you know, tens and tens of thousands of people uh, studying the brain. And I think we've, we've, learned, we've learned quite a bit. But there's still many mysteries that we have to Exactly, on. yeah. Actually, one of them is, uh, well, these emotions, which obviously is a big part of your studying of the threat detection. But I wanted to ask you more about this Hebbian learning or Hebbian learning. Okay, the, the, Hebbian. Which is, with Hebbian, which I said that. But Another Canadian, synaptic. by the way. Is he? Huh. Yeah. Uh, Donald Hebb, yeah. Uh, he grew Stronger up in uh, Nova Scotia oh, and yeah, uh, became a professor at uh, at McGill uh, and one of the most famous psychologists and neuroscientists ever. Nice, nice. Well, that's good enough. So, uh, but this idea of synaptic of weak signal and strong, we need a weak signal. You explain happen learning better than I will. Okay. My small so, notes, but uh, sorry, is that a small follow-up question to that is uh. So is that kind of what happens with that? Uh, like, I mean, I know a lot of people with brain injuries are service members or people have, or even people who've just had a traumatic brain injury like myself that uh, so traumatic PTSD. Is that yeah. associated with having learning? Would that would you? Would, was well, that let, me, let me back up a little bit yeah. and just explain what it is so your listeners will oh, yeah. be grounded on that because it's exactly. pretty simple. Yeah. Uh, it's a very, it's not just about, I mean, it may happen in PTSD, but let's talk about it in the simplest kind of form. So you're walking down the street, um, you're standing, you you see your neighbor's mailbox, and all of a sudden, your neighbor's dog bites you. Yeah. Now, next time you walk down the street, you're going to be Pavlovian conditioned to the side of the mailbox, because that's that's what you were looking at when the dog bit you. So Pavlovian conditioning, you know, a strong stimulus like a bite is painful is paired with a weak stimulus like the side of the mailbox, and so the mailbox now acquires aversive properties. So Hebb's theory was that the way this happens in the brain is that a, a strong stimulus changes the activity of the neurons that it is connected with. So something like a, a painful stimulus goes into a part of the brain like the amygdala and arouses those cells in a very powerful way. And one of the one of the consequences of that is it triggers protein synthesis in those cells. Now, right. protein synthesis is the basis of you know a lot of what cells do. Now, if at the same time that the proteins have been synthesized and, and active because of the the pain, if the same cell is getting a weak input about something that happens simultaneously, um, but ordinarily wouldn't do much it acquires that ability to activate those cells because the proteins basically glue the weak stimuluses synapses into the cell and strengthen those. So now the weak stimulus is able to activate that cell the way the strong stimulus did 
And so all you need now is the side of the mailbox to make you freeze and your blood pressure to go up. And and this stimulus is doesn't only have to be a visual stimulus, it can be an oral or a or a field like any any sense anything. Yeah, yeah. Any well, no, so, I shouldn't say any because sights, sounds, touches uh, are very sensitive to to that kind of learning. But when we get into then smells as well, but when we get into taste, it's a different thing. Okay. So you you can have Pavlovian conditioning to a taste uh, that made you sick, despite the fact that there's no overlap. So you have the taste, and then maybe an hour or so later, you get sick, you get nauseous, but your brain connects that taste with the delay, but you know, with the previous, t- uh, sorry, the the uh, connects the nausea with the taste that happened an hour or two ago. That was not thought possible in terms of Pavlovian conditioning, but it now is believed to be a form of Pavlovian conditioning that operates very similar, but it's just got that long delay. So is that is that very similar to, uh, it can happen not I'm saying in reverse, but just in different circumstance. For example, I am close to someone who is, well, I shouldn't say I don't know who they are, but uh, who has anxiety. So, uh, and notice that whenever they're, they're, they they their their stomach their gut their stomach feels a bit uneasy they or not a bit uneasy but a certain sense they in their stomach their gut or, or that that, mm-hmm. that they have anxiety so sure. that is that just your your emotions or that brain shrunk giving you evolutionary saying hey you have mm-hmm. anxiety now so they're well, producing this so or is it because of your Pavlovian? I think it's more more basic than that it's it's a form of interoceptive inside you, in other words, Pavlovian conditioning, where, for example, panic disorder involves, for example, a person who feels a a kind of, you know, twinge in their chest and goes into a panic because they've associated that twinge in their chest with the um, um, uh, idea that that's going to lead to a heart attack. They think they're having a heart attack. So the, the mild twinge is uh, a CS, and the idea of the heart attack is really the unconditioned stimulus. In other words, what the shock was in the other example. Oh, so, man. you know, the, the unconditioned stimulus does not just have to be a biologically significant stimulus. It can be psychologically significant as well. And so the, we have these associations uh, in our lives all the time. Now, you asked about PTSD. PTSD is a condition that uh, involves a lot of different kinds of symptoms. So it's not one thing. And each kind of symptom has to be understood separately. And there's certainly a lot of Pavlovian conditioning that goes into PTSD where all of the stimuli that are present when something painful or traumatic is, is happening to you, all of those stimuli get conditioned. And they become triggers of panic attacks and other things that will uh, you know, be problematic for him. But PTSD also has more explicit memories involved in the rumination over uh, the trauma and the, uh, all of the um, uh, memories of what was going on during the trauma. So it, the, uh, it, it's all happening in there, but um, there are different kinds of, of uh, stimuli and different kinds of um, uh, uh, learning that are taking place. Right. Uh, actually, well, I know I know you're not a brain injury, brain injury expert. You are an expert, right. expert on the brain. At least you're an expert on the brain. So, the uh, I was going back to the uh, 
met Dr. Melanie Wagner, or Wagner, the uh, her clinical concussions. But mm-hmm. uh, this is not about this that study. But uh, concussions, I know, they get on like a level, the result of all the of a flood of neurotransmitters and 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 different uh, different uh, di- different uh, was neurons in the brain mm-hmm. that try to to fix, to repair, to retain, get some some sort of homeostasis, get some state homeostasis in the brain. But um, and uh, what was I gonna say? Yeah. So I mean, and and some of that's similar to what we were saying about like, emotion is is uh, your reaction is like a flood of not floods, like that controlled controlled flood of emotions. So have you ever has has there been any any communication coordination much much coordination or communication between the emotional brain institute your institute at New York University? And the and concussive like people are studying concussions or brain injury. Well, yeah. So there's a I think um, probably the closest connection is that people that are doing, for example, uh, studying traumatic brain injury, um, which often is associated with PTSD, will sometimes be working with more basic researchers like myself. And there was a time when I was um, uh, doing some research with uh, Charles Marmer at the New York University Medical School, who is a PTSD psychiatrist, but also has a big program in traumatic brain injury. And we were applying for grants. Unfortunately, we didn't get the grants to pursue that research. But uh... But yeah, that's this concussion, the the study of concussions of, of I mean, for example, I know for me personally, I have a, I have double vision if I had some brain sense on brain injury, and I'm right eye dominant. Mm-hmm. So this disconnection, there, there. I mean, it's I know it's just one study. Now I shouldn't draw any conclusions, but um. How, how long ago did the, you have your injury? Uh, I had in 03, 2003, so in sixteen uh-huh. years, uh, yeah, seven, seven years in August first of this year. So, uh, but um, so so that means there, there's. Probably some there's obviously a, a disconnect between my my right my one side my my vision is on the left side so my right eye down so my left my left side my right vision my right vision seems fine like seems perfectly fine so mm-hmm. there's little little damage that's that bigger that visual cortex but it could be a, a bunch of other things could be you can't, I can't I can't just say there's damage to my visual cortex on my on the right side of my brain. I'd say, I can say there that could be that's one that could be could possibly be one thing, but there's also right. different matters of connections between connections between by atmospheres and in within within atmosphere. So right. is that is that the that that is that what you your your thought of the uh, of uh, you know of sorry not, not John Reiner, but of emotion about how. Different neurons and and your, there's a certain level of evenness to your you want your brain wants to maintain, your body wants to maintain homeostasis. Right, and your right. brain wants to have some stasis. So, is there a is there a is there is there a, do is there a belief that there's a or a theory that that uh, these that this that the uh, injuries are, I mean, aside from structural structural injuries, but that because the brain is very, let's say, gelatinous, but it's very right fluid. Um, right, not very fluid. But, um, is that is that all going to be? Is that do you think it's all going to be not solved? But 
uh, stays to like different ions and different uh, neurons. You can get a balance there. That'd be that. That is the uh, that's the goal of the brain to reach, achieve some balance. Well, I would say it's the role of the brain, but it's a necessary. The, sorry, the goal. Uh, the goal. Of part the of a goal of the brain. Yes. Well, yeah. I think the goal of the brain is to keep you alive, and to yeah. keep your body, help your body um, keep going. I mean, the, you know, from the first cell that ever lived, four billion years, three point eight billion years ago, whenever it was. Um, the way it, you know, there were many experiments of cells before that, but finally one kind of cell came along that was able to do more than just survive for a few hours or a few minutes. It was able to sustain itself long enough to reproduce its kind so that that cell could also reproduce its kind. And that was the start of the whole process. You know, every bacterial cell alive today is the daughter of the first bacterial cell that ever divided because right. they just keep dividing and dividing and dividing. So it's kind of fascinating. And, you know, so that those cells figured out how to survive. And as a result of that, we use that same process to survive ourselves. We have many cells in our body. And so each cell in our body has to survive, but unlike a bacterial cell, we have to make those cells um, coordinate amongst each other and the fact that all of the genes, every cell in our body has the same genetic uh, makeup, allows that coordination to uh, to take place and to avoid any kind of physiological conflict. So the goal of of every cell, but also uh, of your whole body, is to keep you alive. And um, part of doing that is having homeostasis. Right. Well, I know, I know you have to, I mean, this, I mean, I, I've kind of jumbled a lot of these questions together, but, uh, I, I know you have to, you have to go now soon, but, um, I just wanted to thank you so much for, for doing this, for doing this podcast. And, uh, I'll ask you, I'll ask you before the end, I'll ask you the question about your, I don't know if it's your theory or, or just general theory about emotions, what are emotions? And I'll oh, sorry, sorry, I'm like I was saying this podcast, I just asked you one Final question about emotions. Yeah. If you can explain what, you th what your theory of emotions emotions are. So I, I think of emotions. Um, you know, I think we've gotten into a lot of trouble by using mental state words to talk about non-mental state aspects of the brain. So when we talk about the brains, for example, the amygdala in terms of fear, what we're doing is putting mental states into the amygdala, which I don't think is the case. So. For me, an emotion is the experience, the subjective experience, that autonoetic awareness of you being in a biologically or psychologically significant situation. And for that to happen, there has to be a you, somebody has to be home in order to answer that door, in, in other words. So uh, that, that's pretty simple, simply what it is for me. It's that, that conscious experience. And all of those other things that we've inherited from, from other creatures all the way back to bacteria is um, just stuff that helps modulate that process. You know, for example, when norepinephrine and other molecules are released in the brain in a, a psychologically or biologically significant situation, their job is to prolong that state, to keep you locked in psychologically so that you can focus on that state and, and deal with it. Uh, so they add intensity and they add duration, but they don't define the experience. The experience is defined by the, uh, the your mental state of being uh, aware of what's happening to you. 
So, I mean, you know, not, not everyone agrees with me on this definition, but I've tried to simplify emotion by restricting it to the, the experiential part and talking about other things which have a much longer evolutionary history without bringing in conscious experience into their operation. Okay, well, well I, 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 I mean, thank you so much again. Now, this is the final thank you. thing. Thank you so much. And uh, I thank you again for also following my looped, and uh, we, I don't know, well, logic is gone, my logic is fine, but my my th- thought process, my train of thought was gone all sorts of loops and crazy switchbacks and all that. So uh, thank you for somehow keeping thank up you. with and that. I, and, you know, I, and, I wish uh, you well and uh, all your listeners well. So thank you for and, having and, me. And, and where, I'm sorry, well, where can, uh, where can anyone interested in your book about the, about the, the deep history of ourselves? Well, so if you look up my name, last name is it's L-E-D-O-U-X, capital D, no space. Uh, if you look it up on Amazon or any of the other book places, you'll come across uh, the book. Uh, there's also a website for the book called deep-history-of-ourselves. So deep history of ourselves with dashes between each words dot com. Um, and I have a, my own website, which you can get to everything to uh, from there as well. It's joseph-ledoux.com. So, um, again, thank you very much for having me, and I, I hope uh, all the best for you over the holidays. Thank you, you too. And uh, thank you so much for being on. And, and boss, please visit his website, his uh, joseph-ledoux.com, is his, which is actually in your and his, his band, The Amygdaloids. And his solo projects are—they're all—they're all there. So uh, I encourage everyone to visit that, and also please visit my website www.concussiontalk.com. And uh, thank you again, Joseph Do, for being on the podcast and helping thank to you. explain the, the the brain, like what the brain actually does, other than just than you know be injured or not be injured. <laughs> so uh, thank you. All right. Thank you. Bye-bye. Thank you all for listening. And thank you to Joseph Ledoux again for following my twisted thought process. Concussion Talk Podcast will be back again in January. As always, music at the beginning of this podcast is by Ben Sound. www.bensound.com Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. 
That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.